Section 14 of Harding's Luck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katine. Harding's Luck by Edith Nesbitt. Chapter 8. Going Home. In Deptford, the seven months had almost gone by. Dickie had worked much, learned much, and earned much. Mr. Beale, a figure of cleanly habit and increasing steadiness, seemed like a plant growing quickly towards the sun of respectability, or a lighthouse rising bright and important out of a swirling sea of dogs, for the dog trade prospered exceedingly, and Mr. Beale had grown knowing in thoroughbreeds and the price bench, had learned all about distemper and doggy fits, and when you should give an ailing dog sal volatile, and when you should merely give it less to eat and the money in the bank grew till it, so to speak, burst the bank-book and had to be allowed to overflow into a vast sea called consoles. The dogs also grew, in numbers as well as in size, and the neighbors, who had borne a good deal very patiently, began, as Mr. Beale said, to pass remarks. "'It ain't so much the little uns they jib at,' said Mr. Beale, taking his pipe out of his mouth and stretching his legs in the backyard, though to my mind they yaps far more aggravating. It's the cocker spaniel, and the great Danes upset him. The cocker spaniel has got rather a persevering bark," said Dicky, looking up at the creeping Jenny in the window boxes. No flowers would grow in the garden, now trampled hard by the India rubber sole feet of many dogs. But Dicky did his best with window boxes, and every window was underlined by a bright dash of color: creeping Jenny, Brompton stocks, stonecrop, and late tulips, and all bought from the barrows in the high street made a brave show. I don't say as they're acting unneighborly in talking about the police, so long as they don't do no more than talk, said Beale, with studied fairness and moderation. What I do say is, I wish we add more elbow room for em. And as for exercising of em all every day, like the books say, well, I was one pair of ants to do it, let alone legs, and you in another line of business and not able to give your time to em. I wish we had a bigger place too, said Dicky. We could afford one now. Not but what I should be sorry to leave the old place, too. We've had some good times here in our time, father, ain't us? He sighed, with the air of an old man looking back on the long-ago days of youth. You lay to it, we as, said Mr. Beale, but this ere backyard, it ain't a place where dogs can what you call exercise. Not to call it exercise, now is it? Well, then, said Dicky, let's get a move on us. Ah, said Mr. Beale, laying his pipe on his knee. Now you're talking. Get a move on us. That's what I hoped you'd say. Remember what I says to you in the winter time that night Mr. Fuller looked in for his bit of rent, about me getting off the fidgets in my legs? And I says, why not take to the road a bit now and again? And you says, we'll see about that come summer. And ere is come summer. What if we was to take the road a bit, mate, where there's room to stretch a chap's leg without kicking a dog or knocking the crockery over? There's the old pram upstairs, in the back room, as lively as ever she was, only wants a little of paint to be fit for a duke she does. And ears me, and ears you, and ears the pick of the dogs. Think of it, matey. The bed with the green curtains, and the good smell of the herrings you toast yourself, and the fire you makes out of sticks, and the little starses a-coming out and a-winking at you, and all so quiet, a-smoking your pipe till it falls out of your mouth with sleepiness, and no fear of setting the counter-pin afire. What you say, matey, eh? 
Dickie looked lovingly at the smart back of the little house, its crisp white muslin blinds, its glimpses of neat curtains, its flowers. And then another picture came to him. He saw the misty last light fainting beyond the great shoulders of the downs, and the little starses, shining so bright and new, through the branches of fir trees that interlaced above a sweet-scented bed of soft fallen brown pine needles. "'What say, mate?' Mr. Beale repeated, and Dickie answered. "'Soon as ever you likes what I say, and what I say is, the sooner the better.' Having made up his mind to go, Mr. Beale at once found a dozen reasons why he could not leave home, and all the reasons were four-footed and wagged loving tails at him. He was anxious, in fact, about the dogs. Could he really trust Amelia? "'Don't know who you can trust, then,' said Amelia, tossing a still handsome head. "'Anybody'd think that dogs was babbies to hear you.' "'So they are. To me. As precious as, anyway. Look here, you just come and live here, Amelia, see? And we'll give you five bob a week, and the nipper, he shall write it all down in lead pencil on a bit of paper for you. What they're to have to eat, and about their physic, and which of them to have what?' This took some time to settle, and some more time to write down, and then, when the lick of the paint was nearly dry on the perambulator, and all their shirts and socks were washed and mended and lying on the kitchen window ledge, ready for packing, what did Mr. Beale do but go out one morning and come back with a perfectly strange duck's hunt? "'And I can't go and leave the little beast till he knows himself a bit in his new place,' said Mr. Beale and have him bolton off gracious knows where, and been pinched or carted off to the dog's home, or that can I now? The new dog was very long, very brown, very friendly and charming. When it had had its supper, it wagged its tail, turned a clear and gentle eye on Dickie, and without any warning stood on its head. Well, said Mr. Beale, if there ain't money in that beast, a trick dog he is, he's worth what I give for him, so he is. Knows more tricks than that ear, I'll be bound. He did. He was a singularly well-educated dog. Next morning, Mr. Beale, coming downstairs, was just in time to bang the front door in the face of Amelia coming in, pale-laden from doing the steps, and this to prevent the flight of the new dog. The door of one of the dog-rooms was open, and a fringe of inquisitive dogs ornamented the passage. "'What you open that door at all for?' Mr. Beale asked Amelia. "'I didn't,' she said, and stuck to it. That afternoon, Beale, Smoking in the garden, got up, as he often did, to look through the window at the dogs. He gazed a moment, muttered something, and made one jump to the back door. It was closed. Amelia was giving the scullery floor a thorough scrub-over, and had fastened the door to avoid having it opened with suddenness against her steaming pail or her crouching form. But Mr. Beale got in at the back door and out at the front, just in time to see the dachshund disappearing at full speed. Like a bit of brown toffee-stick, as he said, round the end of the street. They never saw that dog again. Trained to it, Mr. Beale used to say sadly, whenever he told the story. Trained to it from a pup. You may lay your life. I see him as plain as I see you. He listens, and he looks, and he doesn't ear nor see nobody, and he ups on his hind legs and turns the handle with his little twisty front pauses, clever as a monkey, and out he goes like a harrow in a bow. Trained to it, you see. I bet his master what taught him that sold him time and again, making a good figure every time, for he was a handsome dog as ever I see. Trained the dog to open the door and bunk ohm, see? Clever, I call it. It's a mean trick, said Dickie, when Beale told him of the loss of the dog. That's what I call it. 
I'm sorry you've lost the dog. I ain't exactly pleased myself, said Beale, but no use crying over broken glass. It's the cleverness I think of most, he said admiringly. Now I'd never a thought of a thing like that myself. Not if I'd lived to a hundred, so I wouldn't. You might have, he told Dickie flatteringly, but I wouldn't myself. We don't need to, said Dickie hastily. We earns our livings. We don't need to cheat to get our livings. No, no, dear boy, said Mr. Beale, more hastily still. Course we don't. That's just what I'm a-saying, ain't it? We shouldn't ever have thought of that. No need to, as you say. The cleverness of it. This admiration of the cleverness by which he himself had been cheated set Dickie thinking. He said, very gently and quietly after a little pause, This year walking tower of ours. We pays our own way. No cadging. I should hope you know me better than that, said Beale virtuously. Not a patter have I done since I done the rally and started in the dog line. Nor yet no dealings with that red-headed chap what I never see. Now is it likely, Beale asked reproachfully, I should hope we are a cut above a low chap like what he is. The pram's dry as a bone and shiny as your at, and we'll start the first thing in the morning. And in the early morning, which is fresh and sweet even in Deptford, they bade farewell to Amelia and the dogs and set out. Amelia watched them down the street and waved a farewell as they turned the corner. It'll be a bit lonesome, she said. One thing, I shan't be burgled with all them dogs in the house. The voices of the dogs as she went in and shut the door seemed to assure her that she would not even be so very lonely. And now they were really on the road, and they were going to Arden, to that place by the sea where Dickie's uncle, in the other life, had a castle, and where Dickie was to meet his cousins after his seven months of waiting. You may think that Dickie would be very excited by the thought of meeting, in this workaday nowadays world, the children with whom he had had such wonderful adventures in the other world, the dream world. Too excited, perhaps, to feel really interested in the little everyday happenings of the road. But this was not so. The present was, after all, the real thing. The dreams could wait. The knowledge that they were there, waiting, made all the ordinary things more beautiful and more interesting. The feel of the soft dust underfoot, the bright dewy grass and clover by the wayside, the lessening of houses and the growing wideness of field and pasture, all contented and delighted Dickie. He felt to the full all the joy that Mr. Beale felt in oofing it, and when, as the sun was sinking, they overtook a bent, slow-going figure, it was with a thrill of real pleasure that Dickie recognized the woman who had given him the blue ribbon for True. True himself, now grown large and thick of coat, seemed to recognize a friend, gambled round her dreadful boots, sniffed at her withered hand. "'Give her a lift with her basket, shall us?' Dickie whispered to Mr. Beale, and climbed out of the perambulator. "'I can make shift to do this last piece.' So the three went on together in friendly silence. As they neared Orpington, the woman said, "'Our roads part here, and thank you kindly. A kindness is never wasted, so they say.' "'That ain't nothing,' said Beale. "'Besides, there's the blue ribbon.' "'That the dog?' the woman asked. "'Same old dog,' said Beale, with pride. "'A pretty beast,' she said. "'Well, so long.' She looked back to smile and nod to them when she had taken her basket and the turning to the right, and Dickie suddenly stiffened all over, as a pointer does when it sees a partridge. "'I say,' he cried, "'you're the nurse.' "'I've nursed a many in my time,' she called back. But in the dream, you know. Dreams is queer things, said the woman. 
and, she added, least said as soonest mended. But, said Dicky, keep your eyes open and your mouth shut's a good motto, said she, nodded again and turned resolutely away. Not very civil, I don't think, said Beale, considering. Oh, she's all right, said Dicky, wondering very much, and very anxious that Beale should not wonder. May I ride in the pram, father? My foot's a bit blistered, I think. We ain't done so much walking lately, Avis. Ain't tired in yourself, are you? Mr. Beale asked, cause there's a place called Chevering Park, pretty as a picture. I thought we might lay out there. I'm a bit odd in the oof myself, but I can stick it if you can. Dicky could, and when they made their evening camp in a deep gully soft with beech leaves, and he looked out over the ridge, cautiously because of keepers, at the smoothness of a mighty slope, green-gray in the dusk, where rabbits frisked and played, he was glad that he had not yielded to his tiredness and stopped to rest the night anywhere else. Chevering Park is a very beautiful place, I would have you to know. And the travelers were lucky. The dogs were good and quiet, and no keeper disturbed their rest or their masters. Dicky slept with True in his arms, and it was like a draught of soft magic elixir to lie once more in the still, cool night and look up at the stars through the trees. I can't think why they ever invented houses, he said, and then he fell asleep. By short stages, enjoying every step of every day's journey, they went slowly and at their ease through the garden land of Kent. Dicky loved every minute of it, every leaf in the hedge, every blade of grass by the roadside, and most of all he loved the quiet nights when he fell asleep under the stars with True in his arms. It was all good, all, and it was worth waiting and working for seven long months to feel the thrill that Dicky felt when Beale, as they topped a ridge of the great South Downs, said suddenly, There's the sea, and, a dozen yards further on, there's Arden Castle. There it lay, grey and green, with its old stones and ivy, the same castle which Dicky had seen on the day when they lay among the first bushes and waited to burgle Talbot Court. There were red roofs at one side of the castle, where a house had been built among the ruins. As they drew nearer and looked down at Arden Castle, Dicky saw two little figures in its green courtyard, and wondered whether they could possibly be Edred and Elfrida, the little cousins whom he had met in King James the First's time, and who, the nurse said, really belonged to the times of King Edward the Seventh, or nowadays, just as he did himself. It seemed as though it could hardly be true. But if it were true, how splendid! What games he and they could have, and what a play-place it was that spread out before him, green and glorious, with the sea on one side and the downs on the other, and in the middle the ruins of Arden Castle. But as they went on through the first bushes, Dicky perceived that Mr. Beale was growing more and more silent and uneasy. "'What's up?' Dicky asked at last. "'Out with it, father.' "'It ain't nothing,' said Mr. Beale. You ain't afraid those Talbots will know you again. Not much, I ain't. They never see my face, and I adn't a beard that time like what I've got now. Well, then, said Dicky. Well, if you must have it, said Beale, we're a-getting very near my old dad's place, and I can't make me mind up. I thought we was settled we'd go to see him. I don't know. If he's under the daisies, I shan't like it. I tell you straight, I shan't like it. But we're a long-lived stock. Perhaps he's all right. I don't know. Shall I go up by myself to where he lives and see if he's all right? Not much, said Mr. Beale. If I goes, I goes, and if I stays away, I stays away. 
It's just the not being able to make me mind up. If he's there, said Dicky, don't you think you ought to go, just on the chance of him being there and wanting you? If you come to oughts, said Beale, I ought have gone home any time this twenty year. Only I ain't, see? Well, said Dicky, it's your lookout. I know what I should do if it was me. Remembrance showed him the father who had leaned on his shoulder as they walked about the winding walks of the pleasant garden in Old Deptford, the father who had given him the little horse and insisted that his twenty gold pieces should be spent as he chose. I don't know, said Beale. What do you think, eh, matey? I think let's, said Dicky. I lay if he's alive it'd be as good as three Sundays in the week to him to see you. You was his little boy once, wasn't you? Ay, said Beale. He was wagoneer's mate to one of Lord Arden's men. He used to ride me on the big cart horses. He was a fine set-up chap. To hear the name of Arden on Beale's lips gave Dicky a very odd, half-pleasant, half-frightened feeling. It seemed to bring certain things very near. Let's, he said again. All right, said Beale. Only if it all goes wrong, it ain't my fault. And there used to be a footpath a bit further on. You cut through the copse and cater along the eleven-acre matter and bear along to the left by the edge, and it brings you out under Arden Knoll, where my old man's place is. So they cut and catered and bore along and came out under Arden Knoll, and there was a cottage with a very neat garden full of gay flowers and a brick pathway leading from the wooden gate to the front door. And by the front door sat an old man in a Windsor chair, with a brown spaniel at his feet and a bird in a wicker cage above his head. And he was nodding, for it was a hot day, and he was an old man and tired. Swelp me, I can't do it, whispered Beale. I'll walk on a bit. You just asked for a drink and sort of see how the land lays. It might turn him up seeing me so sudden, good old dad. He walked quickly on, and Dicky was left standing by the gate. Then the brown spaniel became aware of True and barked, and the old man said, Down, trusty, in his sleep, and then woke up. His clear old eyes, set in many wrinkles, turned full on Dicky by the gate. May I have a drink of water? Dicky asked. Come in, said the old man. And Dicky lifted the latch of smooth, brown, sun-warmed iron and went up the brick path as the old man slowly turned himself about in the chair. Yonder's the well, he said. Draw up a bucket, if thy leg'll let thee, poor little chap. I draws water with my arms, not my legs, said Dicky cheerfully. There's a blue mug in the wash-house window ledge, said the old man. Fetch me a drop when you've had your drink, my lad. Of course, Dicky's manners were too good for him to drink first. He drew up the dripping oaken bucket from the cool darkness of the well, fetched the mug and offered it, brimming, to the old man. Then he drank and looked at the garden, ablaze with flowers blush roses and damask roses and sweet williams and candy tuft, white lilies and yellow lilies, pansies, larkspur, poppies, bergamot and sage. It was just like a play at the Greenwich Theatre, Dickie thought. He had seen a scene just like that, where the old man sat in the sun and the prodigal returned. Dickie would not have been surprised to see Beale run up the brick path and throw himself on his knees, exclaiming, Father, it is I, your erring but repentant son. Can you forgive me, if a lifetime of repentance can atone, and so on? If Dickie had been Beale, he would certainly have made the speech beginning, Father, it is I. But as he was only Dickie, he said, Your name's Beale, ain't it? It might be, old Beale allowed. I seen your son in London. He told me about your garden. I should have thought he'd have forgot the garden, same as he's forgot me, said the old man. 
"'He ain't forgot you. Not he,' said Dicky. "'He's come to see you, and he's waiting outside now to know if you'd like to see him.' "'Then he ought to know better,' said the old man, and shouted in a thin, high voice, "'Jim, Jim, come along in this minute.' Even then, Beale didn't act a bit like the prodigal in the play. He just unlatched the gate without looking at it. His hand had not forgotten the way of it for all it was so long since he had passed through that gate, and he walked slowly and heavily up the path and said, "'Hullo, Dad, how goes it?' And the old man looked at him with his eyes half shut and said, "'Why, it is, James, so it is,' as if he had expected it to be someone quite different. And they shook hands, and then Beale said, "'The garden's looking well.' and the old man owned that the garden would do all right if it wasn't for the snails. That was all Dickie heard, for he thought it polite to go away. Of course they could not be really affectionate with a stranger about, so he shouted from the gate something about back presently, and went off along the cart track towards Arden Castle, and looked at it quite closely. It was the most beautiful and interesting thing he had ever seen, but he did not see the children. When he went back, the old man was cooking steak over the kitchen fire, and Beale was at the sink straining summer cabbage in a colander, as though he had lived there all his life and never anywhere else. He was in his shirt-sleeves, too, and his coat and hat hung behind the back door. So then they had dinner, when the old man had set down the frying-pan expressly to shake hands with Dickie, saying, "'So this is the lad you told me about. Yes, yes.' It was a very nice dinner, with cold gooseberry pastry as well as the steak and vegetables. The kitchen was pleasant and cosy, though rather dark on account of the white climbing rose that grew round the window. After dinner the men sat in the sun and smoked, and Dickie occupied himself in teaching the spaniel and true that neither of them was a dog who deserved to be growled at. Dickie had just thrown back his head in a laugh at true's sulky face and stiffly planted paws, when he felt the old man's dry, wrinkled hand under his chin. "'Let's have a look at you,' he said, and peered closely at the child. "'Where'd you get that face, eh? What did you say your name was?' "'Harding's his name,' said Beale. "'Dicky Harding.' "'Dicky Arden, I should have said, if you'd have asked me,' said the old man. "'Seems to me it's a regular Arden face he's got. "'But my eyes ain't so good as what they was. "'What do you say to stopping along of me a bit, my boy?' There's room in the cottage for all five of us. My son James here tells me you've been as good as a son to him. I'd love it, said Dickie. So that was settled. There were two bedrooms for Beale and his father, and Dickie slept in a narrow, whitewashed slip of a room that had once been a larder. The brown spaniel and True slept on the rag hearthrug in the kitchen, and everything was as cozy as cozy could be. "'We can send for any of the dogs any minute "'if we feel we can't stick it without them,' said Beale, "'smoking his pipe in the front garden. "'You mean to stay a long time, then?' said Dickie. "'I don't know. You see, I was born in Bredier. "'The air tastes good, don't it? And the water's good. "'Didn't you notice the tea tasted quite different "'from what it does anywhere else? "'That's the soft water, that is. "'And the old chap. Yes, and there's one or two other things.' "'Yes, I reckon us'll stop on ear a bit.' And Dickie was very glad, for now he was near Arden Castle, and could see it any time he chose to walk a couple of hundred yards and look down, and presently he would see Edred and Elfrida. Would they know him? That was the question. Would they remember that he and they had been cousins and friends when James I was king? End of chapter 8 Recording by Katine.